As you know, we are in the middle of a sermon series called Entrusted, talking about taking all that we have and using it for God's glory. And this morning, we're going to look at the topic of time. How do we use every moment that God has given to us for his glory? I invite you to take your Bibles and just open to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to begin in uh, Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. And then if you want to stick a thumb or a finger or a bookmark in uh, the 90th Psalm, you can do that. And then also in Ephesians 5. In Colossians 4, Uh, the text that we'll be reading will be on the screens this morning as well. If uh, your Bible, your Bible drill skills are a little rusty, uh, that's okay. Uh, Follow along there, but keep your Bibles open this morning as we work through God's word. The great and famous satirist Oscar Wilde once said that punctuality is the thief of time. It's funny when you think about it, you'll get it later. Benjamin Franklin said, lost time is never found again. In the words of the inimitable Dr. Seuss, how did it get so late so soon? It's never, it's night before it's afternoon. December is here before it's June. My goodness, how the time has flown. How did it get so late so soon? And in his work of fiction detailing uh, fictional characters that lived during the time of the uh, Holocaust of World War II, Anthony Doerr, in his uh, fiction book, All the Light We Cannot See, said, time is a slippery thing. Lose hold of it once, and its string might sail out of your hands forever. We could go on and on and on. We could read lyrics from songs, poems from others, words from Shakespeare about the fleeting nature of time. Time is a, a slippery thing. It seems as soon as we feel that we have caught up to the present moment, it's already gone. Many of us wish that we had more time in the day to get things done that we would like to do. Some of us wish that time would go uh, more slowly to be able to spend time with our, our children in more meaningful ways. Some of us may be in difficult points of life and we wish time would just go faster. Whether it seems to go by quickly or slowly... Whether it seems to be a slippery thing or or time, a thing that you often find yourself losing, there is no doubt that we want to, especially as believers, make the most of every moment that God has given to us. In our several passages of Scripture this morning, we'll see that because God is the creator of time, that He is also sovereign over the length of our lives. And because of those two things, He intends that we make the best use of the time that He has given to us, For his glory. This morning, those of us who have been made wise unto salvation, those of us who have been made to uh, be redeemed from our, our sins by trusting in Christ, we should then make every effort to maximize God's glory with every moment that he has entrusted to us in this life. My hope today is to take us through, my intention is to take us through Genesis and Psalms. And Ephesians and and Colossians, these few verses, this is very unlike how I normally preach. Normally we have one text and we just kind of camp out there for the morning. But today we're going to kind of see a a sort of development of a theology of time and then what we ought to do with it. As we begin, let us uh, look together at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And then we'll jump down to verses 14 and 15. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading his word? The scriptures begin this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Jump down to verse 14. God said on the fourth day of creation, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. 
We'll go a little further. Verse 16, God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And he set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. May God bless us as we continue to work through his word this morning. You may be seated. We see from this first passage from the very beginning of the Bible that God is the creator of time. God is the creator of time. The first four words of the Bible tell us all that we need to know about who the Bible is really about. In the beginning, God. God is not only at the headwaters of Scripture. He's not just the first character that shows up on the pages of Scripture, but he is at the beginning of all things. Yes, he is the beginning of all things, including time, this, this passage of moments that we perceive. On the first day of creation, God brought light into existence by the power of his word. He spoke it, and it was. He declares light to be good at the end of the first day. The Hebrew word for good is a word pronounced tov that indicates uh, that a thing may be pleasing or delightful. But this seems to be an insufficient way, I think, of speaking about God's reaction to creation. That he just thought it was nice. God says, let there be light. Oh, that's nice. I guess. Good job. Me? That's not what the text is saying. Rather, the goodness of creation has to do with the very nature of creation. It is excellent and valuable Because of who has created it. That creation was declared good by God in his sight is to say that it was precisely as he intended without flaw or defect. And then we get to verses 14 and 15 of Genesis chapter 1. And we come to the fourth day of creation where God creates the sun and the moon. So on the first day he creates light and darkness. And then on the fourth day he creates the sun and the moon and the stars. Verses 16 through 18 Call the sun and the moon the greater and lesser lights. That's an interesting way of speaking about it. These generic names, greater and lesser light for the sun and the moon, differentiate the sun and the moon as parts of creation and not like and not named deities in and of themselves to be worshipped as other pagan peoples had done. The people of God know that the creation is not a thing to be worshipped, that those things that we see around us, even those great forces of, of nature, the sun and the moon and the waves and the wind and all that are not things to be worshipped, but they are things that our creator has made that we might reflect upon his glory in them. The sun and the moon are not to be served by human beings, but are given in service to the rest of creation. The text tells us that the That the sun and the moon and their passage through the sky mark the passage of time and seasons and days and years and give light upon the earth. Not only does God create the world, but he gives a means by which humanity may measure the passage of time. Think about how important it is to see the sun moving through the sky throughout the day to know what time of day it is. There have been a good many studies that have been done studying the effects of sensory deprivation and time perception where scientists will take individuals and they'll put them into a a sensory deprivation sort of chamber or chair where they can't uh, see much. They only see one kind of light and they, they can't, they can hear very little or sometimes they'll, they'll put them in a room blindfolded and with headphones on so they can't see or hear anything. And, The results of the studies are varied. Some people in in being deprived of sensory input feel that time goes by much, much faster. Others feel that time goes by much, much slower. But this much is true regardless of the varying results of the study. That without exposure to the outside world, to the elements, particularly to the passage of night and day, individuals lose track of how much time has passed. God is the creator of time, and he's the one who has given us a means by which, and a helpful means by which, to gauge the passage of time. Knowing that God is Lord over all, that he's the creator not just of the earth, but also of this thing we call time, we ought to then learn to keep a right perspective on time. Keep a right perspective on time. And that right perspective is that we are subject to it, not Lord over it. We are subject to time not Lord over time. There's a good many of you are probably Doctor Who fans who is a time Lord. 
He's an alien with two hearts and he looks human and he has a, uh, a blue police box that he uses. It's called the TARDIS that he uses to travel through time and space. Um, but even Doctor Who, even though he is a time lord, is even subject to some things in time. Even in Doctor Who, he, he, he himself has to admit that there are certain fixed points in time that no one, no one can change, no one can undo. Keep a right perspective on time. Friend, you are subject to it, not Lord over it. The sense of these passages that we've read here in Genesis, verses 1 through 5 and then 14 and following, is to teach us that God is the creator of time and that all of his physical creation, of which we are a part, we're a part of God's creation, are subject to time and to the passage of it. But he, on the other hand, God, exists independent of time. And thus he is not subject to it, but he is Lord over it. This is the great and eternal difference between us and God, isn't it? We are created. He's the creator. We are finite. We are limited. He is infinite. Our souls are immortal, but he is eternal. If you're all at all like me, you at times grow anxious about the passage of time and how quickly it seems to go by. The older I get, the faster it seems to go. When I was a child, I felt like every school day was an eternity long. I think about my kids in school and, and, I'm, and they're about to get out for the summer and I'm wondering, where did the school year go? And then I think back to when I was in third grade, like my oldest daughter, Abigail, and it felt like every day was just crawling by. And, and I don't know why that is, but as I get older now in my uh, mid to late 30s, it seems that, that whole months will go by without me even hardly noticing it. I feel like it still should be July 2017. I don't know where the last year and a half has gone necessarily. So often I find myself thinking and saying out loud, I need more time. I need just a couple more hours to get this done in the day. I need more time to rest. I need, I need more time with my kids. It's just going by too quickly. But the truth of the matter is that time will go by as it always has, in part because that is how God has created it to pass. Whatever we may try to do to slow time to, or to add to our lives, to have more days to work with, we can never stop the passage of time altogether. So pursue all your special diets and workout regimens and you know, special drug regimens that your doctors may want to give you. Do all the right things to give yourself a long life as possible. But you'll never be able to stop time. You may be able to extend your days, maybe, by good health. But you'll never be able to stop time from passing. I think often our anxiety over the passage of time has to do with the fact that we think we ought to be in charge of it. I ought to be able to control how quickly my life goes by or how slowly these moments pass. I ought to be able to to control that, to perceive that in a particular way. But scripture says plainly, friends, we are not. We're not in charge of the passage of time. So if you're prone like me, to, to feel that time goes by too quickly or maybe too slowly. Remember this, that it is not for you to determine the speed at which time passes, but rather to remember the creator who is Lord over it. Start there. Yeah, Develop a right perspective on time, knowing that you are subject to it, not Lord over it. And the one who is Lord over it is God, and he's God for a reason. And we are not. First, God is the creator of all time. We learn, secondly... That God is sovereign over the length of our lives. God's the creator of time. And he also rules over. He determines the length of our lives. Turn with me to Psalm uh, 90. The 90th Psalm. For a bit of context, this is a song that has been attributed to Moses to be sung from the perspective of the Israelites of the generation that came out of that uh, wilderness wandering period. It's a song that's intended to help them to remember the Lord, to remember the brevity of their lives, to remember the severity of their sin and the importance of obedience to God. Look what the psalmist writes, beginning in verse one. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. 
before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to the dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So verse 12 says, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This is a song attributed to Moses for the people of Israel, the generation that is coming out of the wilderness wandering and, and, and is intended to take over uh, the land of Canaan. And in this psalm, we learn several things about the Lord and about his sovereignty over our lives. We learn, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, that the Lord is eternal. These first two verses teaches us that, that God exists from everlasting to everlasting. His past goes infinitely into the past. His future goes infinitely into the future. He exists in the present moment most perfectly. As Genesis 1 has taught us, God is independent of time. It is his creation and he is not subject to that. The psalmist says that ever before the ancient mountains existed, I am, God was. The Lord is eternal. We learn in verses 3 through 6 that man's life is short. Man's life is short. The brevity of life is remembered in, in these verses of this psalm. Though man dies and returns to dust in the span of 70 or 80 years, e e even in light of that, a, a thousand years to the Lord are but like one day that has passed. So those of us who have had the pleasure of living 80 or even 90 or more years here in our congregation this morning, even that is less than a, a drop in the ocean of time. God says that, that a thousand years is like a day to me. Time, time is nothing to me, says God. In comparison to the 70 or 80 years average lifespan, a day in the life of the Lord far surpasses it all. Our lives are but mist and vapor, less than even, less than even a drop in the ocean of eternity. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 39. Verses four through five to help us to consider the brevity of our life. He says, Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Man's life is short. Our lives are, are far shorter than they, than they seem. And when compared to God's eternal nature, our, 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 the span of our lives is almost as nothing the psalmist teaches and reminds the, that wilderness generation, the one that is coming out of wandering in verses 7 through 10 of Psalm 90, that even our short lives are full of sin. So the Lord is eternal, our lives are short, and even our short lives are full of sin. As the generation that returns from the wilderness wandering period thinks on the disobedience of their parents, those who worship the golden calf, they are met with the very... Uh, with a very problematic uh, reality that uh, their lives are full of sin. And, and if they continue to walk in sin, they will be out of relationship with God. So then the psalmist says, help me to be mindful of what my life is. Help me to remember that, that disobedience is not the way I ought to live my life. And instead, he says in verse 12, teach me to number my days. Teach us to number our days so that... We may get a heart of wisdom. Teach me that my life is short and full of sin so that I can be wise. Now that's a weird plea, weird prayer to pray to God. Teach me how sinful I am and how short my life is so that I can be wise. But consider what the psalmist says in Psalm 51 verse 6. David's psalm of repentance he says, behold, you delight in truth 
in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Psalm 51 is a, a psalm, a, a prayer of repentance and confession of sin when David had that uh, illicit affair with Bathsheba. And in his prayer of repentance, he says, you delight in truth in the inward being. You know all my sins, you know all my faults, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Wisdom and repentance, wisdom and the confession of sin, wisdom and the recognition that we are sinful go hand in hand in the Christian life. To know that we have offended God with our sin by our disobedience is to be wise, to seek his favor, to seek his forgiveness, his forgiveness, to to rest ourselves upon his mercy is to be wise Wisdom is more than just knowing how to do the right thing the right way at the right time. Wisdom in the biblical sense, wisdom of the heart, has to do with repentance and seeking the will of God in our own lives. So we need to understand this. That God, who is sovereign over the length of our lives, even though they're full of sin and toil and trouble, He intends for us to, uh, to, to see our sin, and to develop wisdom through confession of it and repentance to be made right with him. So know this, that you are accountable and will be accountable to God for how you spend your days. You will be accountable to God who is sovereign over the span of your life for how you spend your days, for how you spend your time. If we follow the lesson of the parable of the talents that we looked at last week, we know that that taking all that God has given us and using it for his glory, using it for the expansion of his kingdom applies also to every moment of the day that he has given to us. The lesson of the parable is that those who are servants of the king, those who are disciples of Jesus must use all that our master has given to us for his glory because he will return to demand a reckoning of what we have done with what he has given. Friends, we need to recognize that every moment that we live this life is a, is a gift of God. It is something he has given to you. It is at his disposal to give and, and it is at his will that he takes. And so if you have breath in your lungs and, and time to live, you are intended, you are meant by God to live it for his glory. And he will hold us accountable to that because he's Lord over it. He is Lord over us. He is Lord over all things. God is a creator of time. He is sovereign over, even over the length of our lives, keeping us accountable for how we spend each and every moment. And so now my encouragement to us is, in light of what we'll read in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 4, to pursue God's glory as the best use of your time. Amen. With all the moments, every, every hour, every minute, every second of time that God has given to you, The best thing you can do with it, the best way to use your time is to pursue God's glory, to pursue his fame, his majesty, the spread of his glorious reputation in the world. Paul writes two letters in his life, one to the church at Ephesus and one to the church at Colossae. And these two letters have much in common. In fact, if you read Ephesians and Colossians side by side, you'll, you'll find Paul almost saying the exact same thing, uh, the exact same way in, in both letters to these two different churches. I think it's probably likely that Paul wrote Ephesians and Colossians close in time together. Like he may have sat down and written one letter one day and one letter the next day. And you all know how that is when, when you're just in a particular stream of thought, you'll just say the same things over and over and over again, no matter who's listening. And so Paul writing to two churches in two different cities says essentially the same thing. First in Ephesians chapter five, verses 15 and 16, as Paul is closing out his letter, giving the ethical implications of the knowledge that we have, that we are saved by God's grace through faith. He says this to the church, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Remember the psalm said, give me a heart of wisdom. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And then to the church at Colossae in Colossians chapter four, verse five, he says essentially the same words to that church. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, toward those who are not Part of the family of faith, making the best use of the time. So look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. 
both of these passages, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 4, express the same sentiment to us, do they not? Be wise. Make the best use of the time that you have. Have wisdom to use your time rightly. Just as the psalmist prays in Psalm 90 and in Psalm 51, the believer in Christ is, according to Paul, to walk in wisdom. Having wisdom is not just an, it's not just an, an Old Testament uh, sort of value or virtue. Having wisdom is, is, is a virtue of the people of God throughout all time. And yet wisdom is not merely the ability, as we've said, to make good decisions. But biblically, true wisdom is in knowing Christ as Lord. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, Paul tells us that the scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. By the saving gift of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, You are in Christ who becomes to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so to be wise in the most biblical sense is to know Christ, to repent of sin, and to be declared righteous by God. That's what biblical wisdom is, is to know God in his righteousness, to repent of our sin and turn in faith to him. Thus, walking in wisdom is living every moment of your life, Christian, in light of these truths. To know that God is eternal, to know that he is sovereign over the length of our lives, to know that wisdom is not just in in having head knowledge, but in living in obedient submission to God who created us. The wisest decision then that you can make is to submit your whole life, every moment to Christ as Lord, beginning today and for every moment thereafter. Walking in wisdom has both personal and relational implications. It means something for you individually, and it means something for us all together. In both passages, Ephesians, and, uh, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 4, the church is encouraged by Paul to wisely make the best use of the time. Did you see that in both places? That phrase, make the best use of the time, comes from a, a Greek verb that means to redeem or to buy back. It was a word that was, that was used to speak about um, a slave buying their own freedom from their master. We could read these texts, uh, these verses, and perhaps your translation, uh, if you're not reading from the English Standard Version, um, m- makes this translational choice to say, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, redeeming the time. Redeeming the time then means that in the wisdom of our salvation, in the wisdom of knowing who God is, that he's sovereign over the length of our lives, that we are accountable to him for what we do with it, that true wisdom is in being made right with God through faith in Christ. Redeeming the time means that in the wisdom of our salvation, we are to make every and to take every opportunity to impress the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ into everyday life. To walk in wisdom is to take what we know of the gospel and, and impress it upon every moment of our lives. To take the saving truth that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins and was raised from the dead so that we might be born again into a, a new life free from the shackles of our sinful nature. To know that truth and to believe it and to be walking in faithfulness to Jesus, to be wise unto salvation that way is to take every opportunity of our lives to take the greatest truth that we know, that salvation comes through Jesus, and to impress it, to to place it on top of, to apply it to every moment of our lives. Thus, the sense of these passages in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 5 is that in being made wise unto salvation, Christians are to use their wisdom what we know about Christ and what he has done for us to use our wisdom to exhaust all possible potentiality for gospel witness and the glory of God in every single circumstance. How do you steward the time that God has entrusted to you in this life? You do it by taking every moment of your life captive for the glory of God. You may have been, uh, may have come here today hoping that I would give you some helpful tips on how to schedule your week and, and, and when to wake up and when to go to sleep and how much time to give to this or that. 
friends, the more important thing that I can give to you, because any wisdom that I would have for you in that regard would be, would be human wisdom and it would fail you at some point. If you want to know how to use your life and the time that you have been given, however many years the Lord wills for you to live, do this one thing in everything else that take every moment of your life captive for the glory of God. Seek God's fame, seek his majesty, seek the, the growth and the expansion of his kingdom first, and he'll take care of the rest. Take every moment captive. For the glory of God. And now I do want to give you five practical tips. Some of this is human wisdom. And so take it for what it's worth. Throw the rest in the trash. But I, I think most of these come. Most of these points of, of wisdom. These points of advice come from scripture. And we try to demonstrate that. And so I think they're also uh, helpful for living a godly life. As you take every, as we endeavor to take every moment of our life captive for the glory of God, first do this. Repent of your sin and trust Christ for redemption. This is the first and most necessary step to using your time well for God's glory. You cannot begin to actively bring fame and honor and glory to God who created you and is Lord over all time until you turn from your sin and yourself and trust in Jesus, his only son, who died for sins and was raised again to, for, to bring you forgiveness and, and a right relationship with God. Then and only then can you begin to take every moment captive for the glory of God. So dear friend, if you have not yet turned from sin and self and your own desires and you're still walking and living life on your own terms, understand this, that God has created you for so much more and, and a life that is so much more fulfilling than doing what you want to do. God has not created you to do what you want to do. He's created you to do what he has created you to do, which is to worship him, to love him, to know him, and to glorify him in this world. That is our greatest and highest purpose. And so we cannot hope to take every moment captive of our lives for the glory of God until we have first turned in faith and repentance, trusting Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God with flesh, who lived the life that we could never live and die the death that we deserved so that we can be right with God. Repent of your sin and trust Christ for redemption. Start there. Then the next three are not in any particular order. With the time that you have, with the years, with the days, with the moments that God gives you, work hard for God's glory. Make effort, give effort, extend effort for God's glory. Work hard. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, Moses, the writer of Genesis through Deuteronomy, says that as God created the first man, Adam, he placed him in the garden, the Garden of Eden, to work it and to keep it. Mankind, even before the stain of sin entered the world, man was created to work, to do stuff with our hands, to be productive, to tend to the things that God has given us uh, authority over. We are meant to put our time to use. We're meant to do stuff with the moments that we have. We are meant to work. And so working hard for God's glory means avoiding idleness. Now, God has gifted every one of us with different abilities and talents and skills and education levels and, and uh, specialities and things that we've been trained in and trained to do. And so there, there, is no, there is no occupation that is somehow, or, or vocation that is somehow more holy than another. To be a pastor is no more holy than to be a plumber. To be a teacher is, is no more highly regarded by God than, than to be a stay-at-home parent. There is in Christ no separation between the sacred and the secular. All of it in Christ is sacred. All of our lives are lives of worship. And so that means that even the most mundane moments of our existence are to be lived for the glory of God. And so work hard with the time you have for God's glory. Now, that doesn't mean that all of us should have blue-collar jobs and work with our hands and, and that sort of thing. But certainly those of us that God has called to do ought to do that and ought to work hard. Those of us that God has gifted with, with uh, different mental capacities or different callings in life should use all of those to his glory. However it is that God has gifted and designed you to work, work hard at that for his glory. Men, we should go to bed tired at night. 
two nights ago, Friday night. I didn't do a whole lot during the day Friday. I worked on a paper that was due, uh, sat in a coffee shop, drank a little bit of coffee, took my youngest daughter to school, picked her up. But I spent some time in the afternoon because I'm not in the office on Fridays, um, watching some episodes of Star Trek Next Generation on Netflix. Uh, the day went by rather quickly. And as everybody else in the family was getting ready to go to sleep, I found myself at about 10 o'clock still just wide awake, just wide awake, not even tired, not even sleepy. And so I stayed up for like two more hours, not knowing what to do, just watching more Star Trek next generation on Netflix. That was not a good way for me to spend the day. Now, I know that God has made me to work. And in a moment, we're going we're to look at the importance of rest. But there's a time in which idleness is, 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 can be sinful. Where we can rest sinfully and not to the glory of God. Men, I'm speaking to men, this is a particular temptation among us. It is a particular temptation among men to be lazy. And guys, I don't know why it is. I, my wife will work circles around me all day long. And I don't know how she does it, but there's just, I know that there's something in me that, that, that says that if there's any possibility to take the easier way, I'm going to choose that. And too many days I have gone to bed, not yet tired. But I'll say this. There have been a, a good many days in my life that, that at the end of the day, I've looked back on the hours that, that were spent and gone, you know, I could have done better with that. I could have done better with the time that I had today. Yesterday, I spent the majority of the day working on a, a door frame, the trimming out a door frame uh, on our house. It took me about seven hours to do. You can tell I'm new at this. Some of that time was spent going to Lowe's and trying to figure out what to buy because there's no people there to help me find anything. But I spent the majority of the day working out in the sun with my brand new miter saw that you can borrow if you'd like to. It is the God's gift to homeowners. I, anyway, moving on. But I spent most of the day in the sun framing out this, this door that was trimmed out uh, poorly when we, when we bought our house. And do you know how I felt at the end of the day after I'd sweated and been sunburned and, and a little bit bruised and, and other things? I felt really good at the end of the day. Really good. I felt like I had worked hard and I was ready to go to bed. There have been many days at the end of the day I look back at the hours that I spent and thought I could have done better with that but I've never once regretted working hard all day long. I've never once regretted putting my body and, and the skills and abilities that, I, that God has given to me to use in productive and helpful, non-sinful ways. And so whether God has gifted you men with your hands or with your mind or however God has gifted you, work hard for his glory. Men, go to bed tired. Work hard for God's glory. Third, rest well for God's glory. At this point, you may be tempted to think that I'm encouraging all of us to work wire to wire, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. You should work hard and, and, don't, ever, and don't ever stop. Well, that would be unbiblical. Working hard is a way that we glorify God with the time that we have, but also we glorify God with the time that we have by resting well. Notice I didn't say resting, period, but resting well. In the creation narrative, as Moses tells us how God created everything in six days, on the seventh day, God rests. And he doesn't rest because he's tired. God, God doesn't get tired. But he rests to sit, to rule, and to reign over all that he has created. He, he sits as a king on his throne to rule over his kingdom. Likewise, God who rests on the seventh day intends that we rest from our work in appropriate ways to worship him and to remind us that we don't need to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because God who is ruling over all things is our provider. Now there are ways to rest that are not particularly glorifying to God. If we find ourselves with much time spent in idleness, twiddling our thumbs or thumbs or, or wasting away the day watching episodes of Star Trek next generation on Netflix, that is not a good way to, that is not how we rest well. Even if 
in the freedom that we have, maybe in, in our later years or in our retirement, to spend all of our time pursuing whatever hobbies that we might do, not, not necessarily working very hard at what we're doing, but just doing what we enjoy doing, there's a way in which you can rest in retirement that does not glorify God. It is possible to waste your life on the golf course or in the knitting room or in front of the TV. I'm not saying it's bad to golf. And I'm not saying it's bad to knit and to sew. And I'm not saying it's bad to watch something on TV from time to time. But in resting well, let us, let us work hard so that we might rest well, rest in appropriate ways, not in idleness, but in ways that, that are allowing us to enjoy all the things that God has given us time to enjoy, rest in ways that, uh, that, that are spiritually rejuvenating and refreshing. Part of our worship here together on Sunday mornings ought to be restful for us. To, to be just in the fellowship of, of other believers as we worship the one same God altogether. That should be refreshing to our souls. Worship should not, should not necessarily feel like work. In Christ, we have been made to know God in a right relationship. We have spiritual rest in him. We don't have to come to worship offering sacrifices of animals and bulls and goats and sheep to pay for our sins. But instead, our worship, having uh, our sins having been paid for by Christ, our worship is now enlivened and freed to be a restful experience. And so, Christian, rest well for God's glory. Work hard for God's glory. Rest well for his glory. I trust that God will give you wisdom to know the balance between those two. And then fourth, know how you use or even how you misuse the time God has given you. Know how you use or even how you misuse the time God has given. Many of you know I'm uh, pursuing a doctor of ministry degree at Gateway Seminary. And over the past four months from January through April, I've had to keep a day by day. Uh, they, they call it a ministry journal, but what it really is, is a time audit. For the last four months, from the moment that I woke up until the moment that I went to bed at night, I had to journal, I had to log how I spent every hour of the day for four months. I won't say that I hated it, But this process showed me a lot of things, taught me a lot of things about myself and how I use my time. Auditing my time for four months, for a third of the year, showed me often times and places where I was working too much. Where, where I was feeling uh, guilty about uh, not taking a couple moments in the day to rest. I feel like I just had to push through everything, just work wire to wire during the day. It showed me the, the sinfulness of doing that and not even seeking patterns of rest throughout the day. It also revealed to me time when I was idle. There were days where I'd be uh, doing this, this time audit and I would look back and I'd go, I don't even know what I did for those two hours. I, I really, I can't remember. And so there were a couple entries like 2 to 4 p.m., lost time. I have no clue what happened there. Just gone from my memory. But because it was, it was gone, because I couldn't remember it, it, it just reminded me that if I was doing something meaningful during that time, even if it was resting, that I would have remembered it. So apparently whatever I was doing during that time was, was not meaningful. I, I forgot it. Doing this time audit taught me to prioritize my own time better. Taught me that, that if I don't get up before my girls get up, I'm not going to have, and before I have to go to work, I'm not going to have the time that I need in God's word and in prayer to prepare me for the day. To just sit in, in personal and private worship of God, meditation on his word, contemplation of who he is. If I don't get up early, it's not going to get done. It taught me that. It also taught me that if I get up early and I get started well uh, early in the morning by having that time in God's word and in prayer, that that helps me to work better throughout the day. And the earlier I get up, the better I work. And the better I work, the more tired I am at the end of the day and ready to go to bed. I'm not saying that you should take the next four months of your life and day by day audit every single hour of how you spend your time. But I'm also not, I'm also not, not saying that. 
in order for us to know how we use or to misuse the time that God has given to us, because we know that it goes by so fast, and once time is gone, we can't ever get it back. Once opportunities have passed us by, we, we can't go back to, to redeem them from the past, to, to, to get them back into the present moment. It's incredibly important for us to have wisdom about how we use our time or even how we misuse our time. And so I'm not saying you should go for the next four months and keep a daily time log, but maybe you do it for a week. Maybe for a week, maybe this week, you just sit down with a a pad and paper and and each day at the end of the day, when you get home from work or, or as the day goes along, just write down what you did from eight to nine 30 AM and from 10 to 11 o'clock and keep that throughout the day to see on paper in front of you where your time has gone. So at the end of the day, if you're complaining about where did all the time go? Well, at least you'll have a record of where it went. And if at the end of the day, you're going, man, where did all the time go? But you look on how you spent your time. And you're like, man, that was, that was really, I had a good time in God's word this morning. I, I kind of forgot about that come afternoon. And, and that's really good opportunity with my neighbor, just talking and, and, and encouraging him uh, about some things and, and, and having conversation that I can pivot to the gospel later. And, you know, I forgot about that part in the afternoon where I had that doctor's appointment and, and God just showed up during that time just to reassure me of, of my security of salvation and, and that I'm held in, in his hand, regardless of what may be going on in my body. Keep a, t- a journal of your time. I challenge you to do that. Maybe this week, do it for a week. If that that's all that you can handle. That's good. Use that week to reflect on how you use or how you misuse your time. Maybe you need to do it for a month. Maybe you need to do it for three or for four months. And if you need a handy little word template to type it all into, I got your back. <laughs> know how you use or misuse your time. Rest well for God's glory. Work hard for God's glory. Begin a life of glorifying God with every moment. Yeah, by repenting of your sin and trusting Christ for, for redemption. And then fifth and finally... Learn to view every moment of your life through the lens of the gospel. Said before that wisdom is taking all that we know about salvation and impressing it upon every moment of our lives. The greatest truth that we know that Christ has died to make us right with God and and impose that upon every moment of our lives. Learn then, Christian, to view every moment of your life through that lens through the lens of the saving blood of Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection for your sins. Take that lens of seeing life and apply it to your parenting so that the time that you spend with your children is time spent leading them, helping them to to know Christ and to follow him more faithfully. Take that lens and apply it to your work to know that there is no distinction between what is sacred and what is secular, but that is Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or, or whatever it is, do all to the glory of God, that your work is part of your worship. View your, your retirement and this time in life that you have away from, away from work through the lens of the gospel. Ask God how he might make you wise to use your retirement years for his glory and not just for your own enjoyment. Knowing that your greatest enjoyment comes in glorifying God. In your retirement, in our retirement, I pray that one day I will be able to share in the joy of that with some of you. In our retirement, we, we have... Time that is not now devoted to working all day, working a job. We have moments in our day to be free to come alongside other believers, younger believers, maybe those who are newer in the faith, to spend our moments uh, investing in their spiritual good and their spiritual development. Can you imagine, senior adult, what good God might do for his kingdom? If all of us, as we approach retirement, would consider those maybe last 20 or even 30 years of our life that we don't have to work a job for a paycheck to work hard for the Lord making disciples. Can you imagine what impact that would have around the world and in our church? View your retirement through the lens of the gospel. View your recreation through the lens of the gospel. I'm not saying don't go golfing. God has given to us some good things like golf to enjoy for his glory. Think about how you're going to spend your summer vacations, family. Some of us are going to go on vacation different places. Students, those of you who are not going to be in school, how are you going to spend the time? How are you going to spend the weeks that are ahead of you? Are you going to use them for God's glory or are you going to waste them away watching days of our lives? You guys don't even know what that is. View every moment through the lens of the gospel, even our Sunday morning worship and Bible study times. Knowing that God will keep us accountable, hold us accountable for how we spend every single moment. How important is it for we 
who are partners in the gospel as members of this church, how important is it for, for us to remind ourselves of the gospel, to be rejuvenated in the gathering of the saints, to be encouraged and edified and to bear one another's burdens? How good is it for us to, for we who know Christ to do that together and how foolish is it of us to prioritize other things in that place? Knowing that God has saved me and my family to be a part of a community of believers, my wife and, already have, and I have already made uh, commitments and decisions about things that our children will not do on Sundays. We've already made it because Sunday morning is when the church gathers. It's when we're worshiping together. It is vitally important for my spiritual life and for their spiritual life. And so if my children want to play sports or be involved in dance or whatever on Sunday mornings, we're just not going to do it. We're just not going to do it because them knowing Christ and walking with Jesus and, and knowing the love of the body of believers and the encouragement that comes uh, from that is so much more important than playing basketball on a Sunday morning or volleyball on a Sunday morning, football, dance, whatever it is. And so we have already made the decision to do that. And so parents, I, this is going to come as a challenge and, and I know I'm stepping on some of your toes here, but if you have other Sunday morning commitments that conflict with your worship with the body. I want you to think hard this week about whether those other commitments are really as important as, as in being with the body of faith that is, that, that is this church every Sunday. Whether having a yard sale or going to a football game or what is more important than worshiping with your family of faith. And I'm not, I'm not trying to lay guilt on you. I don't want to do that. But it's just too easy to be distracted. It's too easy to set our mind on other things. It's too easy to think that, that my kid's success, my kid's social development is somehow more important than, than our, our, our worship as a family together with the body of Christ. So if you have other Sunday morning conflicts, uh, I, I would just ask you to consider those. And if you... Have a job that you can't get out of and it forces you to work on Sunday mornings when you worship. Come and talk to me about that. Let's work together. Maybe we can help you to find a church body that doesn't meet specifically on Sunday mornings. So you can prioritize other time to be with that church. In the day in which we live, we live in kind of a 24-hour, 24-7 sort of society. People have to work on Sundays a lot. I get that. I'm not discompassionate, uncompassionate toward that. And so as your pastor, I want to help you to have wisdom and to walk through how to prioritize that time of worship altogether. But don't give up worship for sports. Man, worship is so much better. We're preparing for what we'll do for eternity. And you'll have all eternity to play sports in the resurrection And that's a lot of time. Church, let us, as we endeavor to do the best with what God has entrusted us, with the time and every moment that he's given us, to take every moment of our lives captive for the glory of God. And let us begin today. Let us begin right now. As I pray, our praise team is going to come. They're going to lead us in a song of response.